I want to speak to you today uh, a message the Lord gave me out of Luke chapter 14. So if you have a Bible and want to turn there, if you're wondering when we're going to take the Lord's Supper, uh, the company we order from, the shipment was delayed. So we didn't have, we don't have the communion cups, so we're not doing that today. Uh, so there you go. If you were wondering that, uh, turn in Luke uh, to Luke 14 in your Bibles if you want to follow along. And the Lord gave me a message this past week that I want to speak to you about rejecting rejection. How many of you know rejection is a lie? Rejection is a lie. So the devil moves in rejection because God is a God of love. God is a God of pursuit, which is the opposite of rejection. Rejection pushes away. Rejection says, I don't want anything to do with you. Rejection says, you're not accepted. You're not good enough. You're not worthy. That is not God's heart. God is the opposite of that. Um, When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden... What was God's response? Did he go, oh, you sin, away with you, scrap you, start over, I'll create some new people and we'll keep doing that till, till somebody gets it right. No, he pursued them. He said, where are you? He pursued them in discipline. He brought training, he brought correction. He worked with them through a process to bring redemption, which was redeemed means to make up for their sin and their the things that they fell short in. God is a God of pursuit. God is a God of invitation. God is a God of love and acceptance. That's who he is. And so the devil, one of his main strategies is rejection. Um, There are spirits of rejection. They operate in rejection. Uh, It's it's a major demonic strategy. When we do deliverance and inner healing here, uh, I can't tell you how many sessions, uh, I would say a majority of sessions, we pray through a spirit of rejection that people have suffered from. Um, How many of you know that uh, we're, we're, we're coming into the Christmas season, and what Christmas is all about is the gospel. For God so loved the world, he what? He gave his one and only son. He didn't, he didn't just tell us to worship him. He came to this earth himself to reveal himself, to live the perfect life we couldn't live, and then ultimately to die on the cross to pay this, the debt of our sin. And then he rose again. And even though his own people rejected him, the Jewish people, and even though his own disciples abandoned him, one denied him, one betrayed him, which was rejection, He pursued them after the resurrection. He loved them. He called them back. He said, I still want you on my team. He secured their positions in the kingdom through his grace, even though they had failed. And then he poured out his Holy Spirit. And that's the gospel. That's what Christmas is all about. You know, the only thing that we can take to heaven with us is other people. And we are living in a world where a majority of people are in danger of rejecting the greatest invitation that's ever been given to mankind. I think it's been well said. It's kind of an American proverb or a, a worldly proverb that familiarity breeds contempt. I once heard a theologian say, familiarity may not necessarily breed contempt, but it definitely takes the edge off of admiration at times. And I think we get so used to the gospel story and repeating the truths of the gospel that our familiarity with the Lord or with the story can take our edge off of the wonder and the glory of, the in, of what has been offered to us and the invitation we've received. 
that we could be restored to union with the creator of the universe. That we can have eternal life, that death, this world, praise God, is not our home. Death is not the end. But eternal life, how many of you know, it starts the moment you receive Christ by faith in this life. Because eternal life is this, to know the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So when you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, boom, you get born again. Eternal life starts in you in that moment. And so when you lay down your natural body, it's just a tent, right? These are just avatars, okay, for us digital generation people. And when you lay down this avatar, when it becomes obsolete, you, you don't, your spirit does not die. You pass from life to life. Jesus said, whoever believes in me will not taste death. And so what started as a, a punishment for sin or a discipline for sin through Christ has now become a passageway for the fullness of union with God. He's removed the sting of death. Death will be swallowed up in life in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we don't have to fear death. We have the hope of heaven. But the relationship with God starts the moment we receive Christ by faith. And then he says, when you, the moment you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. He comes to dwell within you. Pre-Jesus, that never happened in human history. The Holy Spirit would come on people in power. He would anoint them in power, but he didn't dwell in them. And so, whew. I once heard a theologian say, you know, we'll get to heaven. We'll be like, Moses, what was it like to be on the mountain? You know, David, what was it like to write all those songs and to face down Goliath? You know, Elijah, what was it like? to be taken up in a chariot of fire. Elisha, what was it like to see God do those miracles through you? But I think they'll all ask us, what was it like to have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in you while you were in the flesh? It's like, wow, what's been offered to us? The hope of heaven, and it gets secured the moment you receive Christ by faith. Boom, heaven's guaranteed. Fear of death is gone. Don't need to worry about that now. But then you get filled with the Holy Spirit. You get Jesus in you. You have the mind of Christ. You have this relationship with the Lord. It's, it's the greatest invitation ever offered to humanity. And yet, Jesus said, wide is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. And he said, only a few find that way. And so we're living in a world where I would say the majority of people are in danger of rejecting the greatest invitation ever offered. And let's be honest, as Christian people, very, very infrequently do we think about that fact. Very, very infrequently do we think about people who are not going to be going to heaven. And I love... Uh, charismatic Christianity. I love spirit-filled Christianity. I know that it's increased my desire to worship the Lord in my prayer life and my worship life, and and those moments are are like filled with unspeakable glory, you know. And um, being filled with the Holy Spirit, you know, you 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 will spend very long times in prayer and enjoy it, which you know before that not the case and if you did spend a long time in prayer you didn't enjoy because the presence you sense the presence I love charismatic faith I love the presence of the Holy Spirit but I think even in in charismatic circles I've noticed and I've noticed in my own life at times being filled with the Holy Spirit it's like all I want to do is praise him and focus on him and then like when when we think about you know our lives and our prayer life we can just focus on praying for ourselves and we're, we, we wrestle with our problems, right? We ask for help with that, and then we pray, and, and we glorify him. 
And that can become the sum total of our Christianity. You know, in charismatic circles, we talk about, you know, we want the fullness of the gospel, you know, you know, heal the sick, you know, cast out demons, raise the dead. These signs shall follow greater things than these. We talk about that all the time, but we should never forget the first command is preach the gospel. Because who really cares if we see God do wonders if none of the people who see the wonders go to heaven with us? The greatest miracle is salvation. And how can they believe in one they've not heard of? (sighs) Jesus is the light of the world. He said, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. He looked at his disciples. He said, you are the light of the world. We're the body of Christ now. We are Christ's ambassadors as if God were making his appeal through us because he is making his appeal through us. So if we don't tell them about Jesus and if we don't show them, who will? And we don't think about this very often. And I want to talk about why that is today. It has to do with rejection and a spirit of rejection. So why are so many, why are so many people in danger of rejecting the greatest invitation? If it's really that great, why would people reject it? And, and on the second The flip side of that, why do we as Christians not think about that more? And why don't we spend more time and energy helping people come to know Jesus and to receive him, not reject him? And I think the answer to those two questions is related. And there's two main reasons that I want to talk about today. And Jesus, I believe, touches on these things, talks about these things in Luke chapter 14. So I want you to turn there and we're going to talk about this. And I'm going to be starting in verse 12, but we're kind of mid-story, so I want to set it up before we dive into the scriptures. So Jesus has been invited to a dinner party of a Pharisee. The Pharisees were, they were like pastors, preachers, and teachers of God's word, but they were also, it was was a theocracy, so they were also um, government leaders. They were lawyers and judges. They were highly educated. They would have had like doctors, doctorate degrees, and they would have led the religious communities as well as been judges and, uh, you know, government officials, kind of like our Congress or our judges and our lawyers. So these were the elite people of society. Everybody looked up to them. You know, Jesus was a, a friend of sinners. So he went to dinner parties with outcasts with people who had nothing with the poor with the oppressed with tax collectors people who were considered traitors to the nation but he also went to dinner parties with pharisees when they invited him and so he's invited into this dinner party and he begins to teach and he begins to there's like three or four lessons or stories that he tells at this dinner party to everyone gathered to teach them about the kingdom of god And so within that context, we're kind of mid-story, starting in verse 12. It says, Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus is teaching these Pharisees about the love of God. And he's saying, when you go to bless people, don't think about blessing the people who bless you. Think about blessing the people who need blessed. Think about blessing the people who need blessed the most. Now think about this. This is in the home of a Pharisee. Most likely the guest list was the rich neighbors and all the people that he mentioned. And so Jesus, this is, you guys know Jesus was confrontational, right? 
Like, we all are like, I wish Jesus was here in the flesh, and I wish he would come to my dinner party, and that would just be so amazing. Yeah, and what if he started telling stories like this? You know, when you have a party, you shouldn't invite all the people you invited. They're all hearing this. You should invite these types of people. You done messed up, as we say in my family. You done messed up. So he's confronting, but he's teaching about the love of God. Natural love loves the people that love you back. And so it's the holiday season, right? I'm, oh, I want to sing it so bad. It's the holiday season. All right, that's it. That's all you're getting. Don't clap for that. Don't encourage it. My wife's in kids. She would say that. Don't encourage him. I guarantee you, if you're married or an adult in this room with a family, you are thinking about throwing some parties or having some gatherings. And you're probably thinking about having gatherings for the people that you love the most, that love you the most. And that's awesome. Jesus is not saying don't throw parties for your own family, ever. He's not saying don't love the people that you love the most. He's saying don't just do that. The Apostle Paul writes in Scripture, if we don't provide for our own families, we've denied the faith and we're worse than unbelievers. The scriptures say judgment starts with the house of God. Scriptures also say when we love other people, start with the house of God. (laughs) So loving your own family first, yes. Loving your church family next, yes. But what Jesus is saying is don't stop there because those are all the people that love you back really well. And if that's all we ever did, we all would have awesome praise parties and services every week. And it would be like heaven and on earth while the world is dying and going to hell. Some people have special callings to be monks. Okay. They live in isolation, they study the scriptures, they receive revelation, they write awesome books that we're still reading hundreds of years later. But it's a vast minority in the kingdom. I've had to repent of being jealous and envious of monks at times in my life. Anybody else ever have to do that? Maybe not. I read their books, I'm like, this is amazing. But it must be nice to sit in your ivory tower and we're out here dying in the trenches, getting rejected for loving Jesus, trying to save people who don't want to be saved. You know, it's like, come on, man. But listen, we cannot afford to keep this to ourselves. You know that story in the Old Testament? It's a weird story. There's these lepers who've been rejected by the society. A huge army comes against the the nation of Israel. They're they're laying siege to the city. And God is like, in one night, I'm going to deal with this. And he does. And he, he, he supernaturally scares them and they run away and he defeats the army. And the lepers go out and they're like, well, we might as well go over to the enemy because we're starving to death because we've been rejected by our own nation. And they go out to the enemy's camp to try to beg for food and they find the enemies are gone. And they're like, and they, and they left all their stuff. They fled in such haste that they left all their stuff. So that the, the lepers start like, they're getting rich, you know, like taking the plunder, you know, they're getting food, they're getting provisions, they're getting gold, silver, whatever these people left. And they're going and hiding it and store it. And they go, hold up. This is a day of celebration. We can't keep this to ourselves. This would be morally wrong to keep this to ourselves. We need to go share this with the city. And that's what they do. And people of God, whew, 
especially charismatic people of God, it's really fun to pray. It's really fun to worship the Lord. And, and believe me, I could do it all day long. And let me tell you, last night, our, our worship time went like an hour and a half. I don't know how long. It was a long time. And it was glorious. It was amazing. It was amazing. And it, I, I couldn't hardly preach, man. I sat in a chair and just read my sermon because I just couldn't get out of that. We went somewhere deep and I couldn't get out of it. So I'm like, I'm going to have to read this. And I told the church, I was like, I, I felt like we just had a Mount Transfiguration moment. And I'm like Peter, and I'm like, it's good for us to be here. Let's build shelters. Let's live here. And as soon as he said that, the cloud lifts, and Jesus is like, let's go. It was a moment, a taste of heaven. Now we got to go back down. Why? Oh, there's a crooked and perverse generation, and they are lost, and they're dying, and they need to know what you know. So we can't afford to just love the people who love us back. That's just natural love. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 43 through 48, he said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He's saying this is what God's like. Jesus is interceding in heaven right now. He lives to intercede. He's interceding for the saints in accordance with God's will. Yes, but I believe he's also, according to this, interceding. For people who are rejecting him currently. He's not, he's not rubbing his hands. Thinking about oh I can't wait. Till judgment day and I get to send you to hell. That is not the heart of God. He takes Scripture says he takes no delight. In the punishment of the wicked. He takes no delight when the wicked perish. It, he is grieved. That people have rejected him. And they'll spend eternity apart from him. Because of what they've chosen. He goes on in Matthew 5. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is who God is. This is his heart. Verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Like what he's saying is when you love your children really well, when you love your church family really well, you're not, you're not moving beyond your duty. That's just, that's just the duty. That's just righteousness. That's just what you should do. He's saying, what, re what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be whole, be complete. Be like God, be like Jesus. And what he's saying is, don't just love people who love you back. Don't just greet people. Who, that's natural love. When we love church family, when we love other people who love us, the people we like, when things are good, that's just natural. When we start to love people who've rejected us, who've harmed us, when we start to reject, or I'm sorry, when we start to love people we don't even know, when we start to go to other countries to try to love people we've never even met, now we're starting to move in the love of God. Natural love does not do that. That's agape love. That's moving in supernatural love. This is who God is. This is how he wants us to love. And so this Christmas, as we're thinking about hosting gatherings, blessing our favorite people, friends and family, that's awesome. Blessing church family. 
I feel the Lord wants us to move beyond our natural love and think about those who need to experience our love and blessing the most, which I believe is lost people. Those who are spiritually poor, crippled, blind. What could be more like Christmas than that? That those walking in darkness have seen a great light because he came to this earth to reveal himself to them. So when you give a luncheon or a dinner or a banquet, or maybe I could say it this way, when you buy gifts, when you throw baby showers, don't just do them for the people you love who love you back. But when you buy gifts, what if you bought them for some kids whose parents really want to do something, but they're in drug rehab? Whose parents want to do something, but they're in prison and they don't have the means? Are, those, are you going re- to hear anything about that? Are you going to get any glory through that? No. So we have an opportunity, don't we, to do exactly what Jesus is saying. When you throw a baby shower, don't just throw it for your friends. Throw it for a young lady who's, who needs some love, who's struggling. And I love that we're embracing grace to do that as a church family. We have an opportunity. We have an opportunity. Whew. And so I'm proud of you, church. We're, 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 we've been given opportunities to do this, and we're moving in it. And, and these are tangible ways you can go out and do exactly what Jesus said to do this Christmas. When you think about, I remember one Christmas, I was probably a teenager, and I got what I wanted for Christmas that Christmas. What I wanted was some, some filas. <laughs> Remember Fila? Are they even a brand anymore? But you know who it was? It was the Jerry Stackhouses. The next Jordan. That most of you don't even remember who that is. But he was supposed to be the next Jordan. And I wanted some Jerry Stackhouses. Filas. And I got them. And maybe your kids are wanting some LeBrons or some uh, Steph Currys this Christmas. But when you think about getting some shoes... Maybe don't just think about what you can get for the ones that you love the most. What if you got some shoes for people that you don't even know, you've never even met? Maybe some of you crazy people could take off your shoes before you leave church today because this is holy ground. I don't know if Miss Kay would appreciate that, but I don't know. Or maybe just take them off and when you get home and donate them next week. I don't know. Bring them next week. But it's an opportunity. These are opportunities to love as Jesus loves. But I felt really compelled as I read this scripture this week that the Lord wanted to give us an opportunity as a church to, when we think about Christmas and our church gatherings, they're going to be awesome. They're going to be awesome. They're going to be times of worship. They're going to be times of music and dance and artwork and Fun and prayer and praise and it's gonna it's it's gonna feel good to us. But in this region, there's within a thirty minute radius of this church, which is where most of you come from, some of you drive further than that. But within thirty minutes, 
there's about 90,000 people. Over ni- there's over 90,000 people in a 30-minute drive radius. Statistically speaking, about 30% of them say they go to church. 33%. Now, we all, if you go to church, you know not everybody who goes to church knows Jesus. So I think we could safely say in this region, only about 30% of people know Jesus. That means 70% of those 90,000, more than 90,000, most likely currently do not have a personal relationship with Jesus, which means they're most likely on their way to hell, which is eternal separation from God. And I believe the Lord wants us to think about those people as we're thinking about our Christmas gatherings this year as a church family. The Lord gave me a real... This, this just hit me hard this week, thinking about this, praying into this, interceding. Like the Lord started putting faces to this personally because there was a few years ago, um, I made a tragic mistake. You know, we, we had like not bought something on the grocery list or we ran out or something. And on Christmas Eve a few years ago, I had to go to Mount Orb Kroger. Now, let me tell you something about Mount Orb Kroger. I was sitting in there about 10 years ago. We had just moved back here to start this church. And that was my office for the day over there at Starbucks. And there's a bunch of guys in suits. And apparently there were some store management trainees for other Kroger stores being trained by some corporate guys at this Kroger. And they're all sitting there as a little group drinking coffee. And they're training them, talking. And I'm overhearing them. And I hear one of the corporate guys raise his voice. And he goes, now let me tell you, gentlemen, you are sitting in the Taj Mahal of Kroger. And I was like, what are you talking about? And my ears tuned in. He starts talking about how our Kroger is like the highest grossing Kroger. I think it was in the nation or maybe Ohio. It's definitely at least Ohio and I think maybe the nation. And I was just like, are you kidding me? And like they, you know, other Kroger executives come there to study and all this stuff. But for, for whatever reason, a ton of people in this entire region go to our Kroger. All right. And so my, my mom used to work in Batavia and she heard of people in Amelia for some reason driving to our Kroger because it's better. And it's like, Good night. No wonder, right? Well, I'm, I, no wonder when you're there on a Friday or a holiday, right? It's like, oh my goodness, traffic jams and good night. Brown County traffic jam up there. And so I was there one Christmas Eve and it was bonkers. I mean, you could hardly move in there. There were so many people. And uh, I went up to check out. I, it's, it's one of those, it's like, I need like two things. And I've, I'm standing there with two things and there's just the line, every single uh, checkout had a line and it was like 15 people deep and they got like grocery carts with like whole turkeys and all this stuff. And I'm just like, I am going to be here for hours. And I was dying inside. Right. And so I, my wife was like, hurry home. And I'm like, Oh, don't worry. And I like took a picture. i raised my phone up and did the wide angles and I took a picture of it and I looked for that picture. I couldn't find it. When I was praying this week about people who don't know Jesus in this region, the Lord brought that picture back to mind. I was like, what is this, Lord? What are you showing me? He's like, Aaron, think about all those people in that Kroger. They all live in this region. Statistically speaking, at least more than two out of every three of them will spend eternity apart from God. And I was like, oh, started to sink in. When you leave today and you go about your week this week and you go to your kid's school or if you're a kid, you go to school or when you go to your workplace, two out of every three people that you interact with, statistically speaking, are most likely on their way to an eternity without Jesus. 
they're in danger of rejecting the greatest invitation, maybe because they don't even know about it. So why is this? I believe Jesus addresses it in this next story he tells. So he, he tells this dinner party, the next time you give a banquet, don't just love your own people and people that have prestige that can really bless you back. And this guy speaks up and he goes, well, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. He's trying to ease the tension. He's trying to make the Pharisees feel better because they believed in this theology. It's throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 25 is one of the places where it says after the Lord redeems his people, he's going to hold a great feast. Now we know the fullness of that because we have the new covenant. We have Revelation 19. It talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Like basically when this life's over and this world is over, when Jesus comes back and gets his people, we are going to have a party of parties. All right? Jesus is like, at the last, at the last supper, I'm, I'm not going to drink wine again until I drink it in the, in the kingdom, right? At the marriage supper of the Lamb. Like it is going to be a party of parties, all right? It's going to be a feast. There's going to be food. There's going to be drinks. There's going to be fun. There's, I assume there will be music. <laughs> it's going to be a party. It's going to be awesome. And this guy says, well, Basically what he's saying, and they believed in Messiah. This is Messiah theology for the, for the Pharisees. He's like, well, blessed are those who eat with the Messiah. Now the tragic irony is he's actually trying to correct Jesus. Jesus is saying, you should invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, lame, people who can't pay you back. And he's, this guy's going, well, blessed are those who eat with the Messiah. The tragic irony is that he is eating with the Messiah. And he doesn't even realize it. Because of the humble way in which the Messiah is revealing himself. I wonder if some of you who've been struggling with, where are you, God? Where are you, God? Maybe God has rejected me. Maybe he's abandoned me. Maybe he's forgotten me. Maybe you're in danger of missing him in this season of your life because you're not seeing the humble ways that he's revealing himself to you. And so this man says this, and Jesus is like, let me address that. Let's talk about having a feast with the Messiah. And I want to tell you what that's going to be like. And he tells this story. So in verse 16, it says, Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Now you have to understand, this was in Jesus' story, this was common in their day uh, to invite people to banquets, most likely a wedding feast, because these were big parties. Wedding feasts were the greatest party celebration you could have in this time. Uh, in this culture, they would, they would most likely last at least three days. So this is like destination wedding. We're going to someone's house, we're staying several nights, and it's going to be a party for several. It's like family vacation on steroids, right? And so they would save the date, but then when it's actually time, they would send out messengers and say, it's time, now come on. And so these are most likely friends and family, the people that this man loves the most, And the people he most wants to be accepted by, the people he most wants at his party, at his house. And he sends out his messenger to get them. And it says they make excuses. I've just bought a field. I've just bought some oxen. 
You know, I've just bought some land. I've just bought a new car. I just got married. And scripture, Jesus calls them what they are. These are excuses. Their reasons betray the motive of their hearts. Because you don't go look at a field after you've bought it. You don't go try out some oxen after you've bought them. They've already tried these out. They've already seen the field. Oh, I got to go look at it again. <laughs> oh, I just got married. Bring her with you. <laughs> the reality was they didn't want to come. So why do people, why, why especially in Western European culture, are so many people in danger of rejecting the greatest invitation known to mankind? And I believe it's, Affluence, it's unbelief, it's distractions from many other things. It's the third type of soil in the parable of the sower. It's the rocky soil that suck, or I'm sorry, it's the weedy soil that sucks the life out of the word of God. So they have this greatest invitation, but they don't, they don't see it for the value that it is. Why? Because all these other things are sucking their energy. And they think, oh, this is, this is life. This is what's good. I don't, I don't even value that very much. I'm not going to give time and attention to that. And Jesus said it's the deceitfulness of wealth are the weeds and the distractions of many other things. And when you live in an affluent culture, what is, what is, we are in danger of valuing things more than the creator who made the things that we enjoy. Scripture says, has not God chosen those who are poor physically to be rich in faith? Do you know why it's easier for poor people to accept the gospel? Because they have nothing else to distract them. That's, that's just true. So in an affluent culture, we have to guard our own hearts against apathy and indifference towards the Lord and the things of God. Because we can have enough stuff to make it start to feel like heaven on earth or to comfort us in our afflictions. And that's the danger. We're in danger of being Laodicea. We say we're rich, we don't need a thing, but we're really spiritually wretched, pitiful, poor, blinded, naked. And the church of Jesus Christ in this culture, we, we are in danger of this. Our apathy and our, our, I'm sorry, our affluence affords us our apathy toward the greatest invitation we'll ever receive. We need sobered. We need sobered. What sobers us when we think about eternity? What sobers us? Even though we have everything we could ever want, our hearts are empty, we're depressed, we're anxious, and we find that having more stuff, more entertainment, makes us more depressed and more anxious. And why am I not at peace? Because those things could never fulfill. Because they're not the source of life. Jesus is. Jesus is the answer for everything. He's the answer for everything. So if you know people who are lost and they're having marriage problems, Jesus is the answer. You, you know people who are lost and like, well, I have cancer in my body. Jesus is the answer. You know people who fear death. Jesus is the answer. You know, people who are anxious and depressed, suicidal, afflicted, tormented, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is everything. 
And this, these realities sober us. We need sobered by the word of God to number our days aright and to have a heart of wisdom. Because when we as the church give into our affluence and start to draw our sustenance from it, we become apathetic towards those who are headed toward eternity without him. And we're not going to be able to take any of our stuff with us. I can't, I love this guitar, but I can't take it with me to heaven. Nor would I want to, because I want that heavenly harp. How many of you read Revelation? We're getting a, we're getting a heavenly guitar. Come on, somebody. Y'all don't care. I care. That's better than a Gibson or a Fender, man. It's a Jesus guitar, all right? We can't take anything with us except other people. Jesus said the servant came back and reported this to his master, the excuses, the rejection. The owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has already been done, but there is still room. Every person that exists and ever will exist was first originated in the heart and mind of God from eternity. Which means he hoped for a relationship with them and he wanted eternity with them. Which means any person that rejects him, like heaven can't fill up. There's always room. And Jesus wants his church to exist to depopulate hell. And as one of my friends in ministry has said, and I love the way he says this, and to change the landscape of heaven when we bring people with us. So he says, go out and find the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. He says, we've already done that. There's still room. And the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them. So they lived in the city. He's like, you go all the way. Hey, listen, you go all the way out to Brown County, Ohio. You go, I'm you go out to Adams County even, and you find people, you find people who will accept the invitation and compel them to come in. Do you know what the word compel means? It means to force. It means to pressure. It means to forcibly persuade someone until they do something that you're wanting them to do. In our culture, it has a connotation of, of inspiring them. <laughs> that was very compelling. <laughs> My family and the people around me know that when I love something, I can be very compelling. Kroger used to have a brand of ice cream called Turkey Hill. Double Dunker, oh my goodness, one of the best ice creams you'll ever have. Kroger was always in stock. Do you know why? Because I was an evangelist, and they were selling so much Double Dunker, man, they were always keeping that stock. You go to other Kroger's, they didn't have Double Dunker. I love Double Dunker. I would, I would be in conversations with people, and food would come out. We'd be talking about pizza. I'd be like, you like ice cream? Yeah? You ever had Turkey Hill? 
all natural ingredients, none of that fluff, just pure milk, cream, and sugar. You ever had double dunker? <laughs> Mocha flavored ice cream? Hints of chocolate? Hints of coffee? Chocolate cookie crumble swirl? With cookie dough in it. I would compel people. Raise your hand right now if I ever compelled you to buy Double Dunker. And you eventually, yeah. I'm like, you got to try this ice cream. It's amazing. I had somebody, one of my good friends here tell me, I tried, I didn't like it. I was like, I don't trust you anymore. I don't know about this. It's kind of natural when you love something to want to share it with other people. Especially when you know, oh, this is so good. You just don't know. You just haven't tried. Well, I've tried that, but oh, no, 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 no. You got the cheap stuff. You got the generic brand. No, no, no. Jesus is the real deal. I'm talking about real Jesus. I'm not talking fake counterfeit culture Jesus. I'm talking real Jesus, presence of the Holy Spirit. All your sins forgiven. Totally set free. Living a pure life. Filled with joy. Filled with peace. Whew. You know that you know God. You know you're going to have, that's what I'm talking about. Have you experienced that? The power of God. He can heal your body. He can heal your mind. He can heal the broken heart. That Jesus. Do you know him? Whew. Oh, you just haven't tried him yet. Whew. He says, compel them. He's saying, then you go where you need to go. You find people who will accept the invitation. <sighs> it's interesting when the servant comes back and he says, these people that you loved the most have rejected you. Now, of course, we know the owner represents God, right? And it says God gets angry. It says the owner gets angry. Modern counselors will tell you anger is a secondary emotion. I believe that's true. What does that mean? It's in response to an injustice. Most often there's been a trespass that causes pain and hurt. If you came up to me, you know, different people are different. And this is the way I explain it. So if you came up and you, you like punched my wife in the face. She'd probably just start crying and be like, why did you do that? I really hurt. That broke my heart. I trusted you. If you can't punch me in the face, I'm like, you do that again. <laughs> and I'm telling you what. <laughs> you're going to tempt me to not act very Christian. <sighs> right? Stereotypically, women get hurt, men get angry. But why did the man get angry? Because he was hurt. God gets rejected by his own people. Jesus comes. He's, he, people, Gentiles asked him to heal them, to help them. He goes, oh, I was sent only to the, the, the lost nation of Israel. These are the only people I'm called to in my lifetime to focus on. And the vast majority of them are rejecting him. He came to that which was his own and they're all not receiving him. His own did not receive him. 
Some of you know what this is like because you accepted Christ, you got pumped up, you went to tell your friends and your family and they rejected you for it. Or some of you in our church context, you got filled with the Holy Spirit and you went to tell your friends and family and then they rejected you for that. That hurts. So how does God handle rejection? Let me tell you, Jesus, how did he handle rejection? Because he was familiar with, with sorrow and affliction. He was a man of sorrows, a man of sorrows, familiar with affliction, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That means constantly both. Jesus was rejected by the Pharisees, by his own people. Well, his own mother and brothers rejected him. Mary did not, there was a brief moment where she was not believing what Jesus was doing was what he was supposed to be doing. And she partnered with the brothers who were mocking him and making fun of him. And they went to stop him from doing ministry because they thought he was out of his mind. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected by the people you love the most. So who are my mother and brothers, right? He's got a church family that, well, they love me. They accept me. Except in his hour of greatest need, when he's in the midst of being betrayed, They all fall away. They all run. They won't even pray with him. He has to use his authority as their leader to command them to pray. And even when they have the prayer meeting, they fall asleep. And three times he goes, you you can't even pray with me? He's like, you better pray you don't fall into temptation. Because this is the hour when darkness reigns. You're being sifted. And then Judas betrays him and he goes, friend. You betray me with a kiss? He's like, really? Like, I knew you were going to be betray, to betray me, but you're doing it like, you, to the very end, you're acting like you love me? Really? Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be utterly rejected. So how does God respond to rejection? I want you to notice he does not seek to try to work really hard to win over those who are rejecting him. I want you to notice he's not trying to get revenge on those who are rejecting. He's not trying to prove to them how awesome his party's gonna be so that they'll come. It says he's angry and he's upset. When you get rejected, it's gonna hurt. There's gonna be feelings there. But scripture says, in your anger, don't sin. God gets angry, but he never sins. God gets hurt, but he never sins. It's very difficult for us when we're rejected and it hurts deeply and we're angry and all the injustice. It's really difficult for us as human beings in our flesh to not sin. So how does God deal with rejection? He moves in the opposite spirit. It says he gets angry at the rejection. So he opens up a bigger invitation. When God gets angry, grace comes out. Wow. When we curse God, he blesses us. He sends rain on the unrighteous. When we sin against God, he forgives. When we kill God, he offers life to all who will receive him, even the ones who crucified him. We talk a lot in our church when it comes to spiritual warfare to move in the opposite spirit. Jesus said, bless those who curse you. (laughs) 
It's easy to believe that when you're sitting in church and intellectually go, that's true, yes. But when you've been rejected and it hurts, that's hard. It's the moment when Jesus has been resurrected and he's standing on the beach. Do you realize what he's doing? He's pursuing the guys who profoundly disappointed him, rejected him, abandoned him, one denied him. If Judas hadn't hung himself, he could have been there and been up for grace too. Jesus is pursuing them. That's hard to pursue those who've let you down. God moves in the opposite spirit. The temptation when you've been rejected, a spirit of rejection will cause you to pull back, to isolate, to build up walls of isolation and protection around yourself to protect your own heart. So, and I quote, this will never happen again. And that's what we say to ourselves. This will never happen again. So a spirit of rejection will cause you to reject yourself. So you step out to try something, you get rejected for it, and you go, I knew it. I wasn't good enough. I knew it. People don't like me. I knew it. And so you reject your own gift. You reject your own calling. You reject yourself because people have rejected you. A spirit of rejection will cause you to reject other people. I've sat in prayer sessions that break my heart with people who've been through such trauma and such abuse at the hands of other people. And they say things like, well, you just can't trust people. And they mean, I don't trust anybody. And my heart breaks because I know that's a prison that will keep them from the love of other people that will heal them. Rejection will cause you to reject A spirit of rejection will cause you to reject institutions or organizations that had people in them that hurt you. So you got rejected and hurt through a sports team. I reject that sport. I quit. I'm never going to play again. You get rejected through your workplace. I quit. I'm never. That profession is so corrupt. Everyone in that that profession is corrupt. And we make word curses. Everybody. Oh, they're all corrupt. The politicians. The lawyers. All of them. What about churches? Well, I was hurt in a church. So I will never be a part of a church again. Those are dangerous things. That's you in your flesh trying to protect yourself, but you're actually doing what the spirit of rejection wants you to do. Rejection's hard. It is a hard one. It, it can cut to the core. Did you know b- betrayal is the worst type of trauma someone can endure? Did you know that? There's five types of trauma. Betrayal trauma is the worst. So if you think about, say, sexual abuse, if you were just sexually abused by a random stranger in a dark alley, that, that's super traumatic, all right? That's very bad. There's going to need to be a lot of healing that happens there. Spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally, right? But when that same type of abuse is at the hands of a father or a mother, there's the abuse itself, which is traumatic, but now you have betrayal abuse. Betrayal is someone who 
you trusted the most or that you should be able to trust the most has harmed you in some way. So divorce, one of the most traumatic things someone can go through. This is where spirits of rejection enter in. Messages of rejection enter in. Strongholds of rejection can be created if you're not careful. So we have a lost and dying world. Our apathy, our affluence causes us, our, our affluence causes us to be apathetic. We can, we can tend towards unbelief. This is a primary reason we don't care as much as we should. Do you know why the other reason is? Spirit of rejection. Whole lot of Christians have experienced rejection. And what's it make us do? I want to isolate. I want to be a monk. I just want to read scripture and pray because I know God's safe. He is my hiding place. He is my safe place. And that's where I want to live the rest of my life. And I'll write profound books and, 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 and throw them out to the world and die in peace. <laughs> that's my fantasy life, by the way. All right. <laughs> they say every pastor has a fantasy job. That's mine. But I joked last night, I'm already married. I can't be a monk, all right? It's too late for me. Jesus wasn't a monk. He spent a lot of time with the Father. But he kept going out to where he'd get rejected. And what would he do? He'd go back. He'd go to a secret place. He'd get healing from the Father. And then what would he do? Right back out there. Pursuing people that rejected him. Loving people he didn't know. That he knew would reject him. And here's the deal. If you've ever been rejected, your temptation is to be a monk. How many times have I heard, the people you know that don't go to church that believe in God, why don't they? Because they went to church at some point. And what have they told you at some point? Oh, I'll never. I believe in God. I love Jesus, but I will never go to a church again. Rejection. That's actually withholding them from their calling. It's keeping them from helping save other people. And... It's keeping them from the fullness of their healing. So how do you overcome rejection? You move in the opposite spirit, which is a spirit of love and invitation. If you've been rejected as a Christian, you may need a time of healing that's away with the Lord. Probably do. But there will come a point when the Lord's like, all right, let's get back out there. You know what it is? It's cardiac rehab. My wife and my mom are cardiac rehab nurses. My mom's retired, but she did that pretty much her whole career. So people have major cardiac events, heart attacks, they almost died, all that. They go to cardiac rehab. Do you know what they do in cardiac rehab? Do you know what they, do they tell them to, hey, sit on a couch and never do anything ever again? Because, because stress level, physical stress level increases your risk for another heart attack. So you should sit in your house. You know, I had a heart attack when I was out walking my dog. I will never walk that dog again. <laughs> you hold it against the dog. <laughs> Is that what they tell them? Sit on the couch. Don't ever do anything ever again. No. Do you know how you rehab something? You have to use it. Physical rehab. Some of you have been to physical therapy. And you're like, this hurts. Oh, I told you I couldn't move my shoulder. That's why you have to move your shoulder. Ah! Cardiac rehab, they put mild levels of stress on the heart through mild exercise. And what happens? 
the heart gets stronger. And then after a few weeks, maybe a month, the heart gets stronger. They increase the level. If you are a Christian who's been rejected at some point, the Father will pull you away to heal you, to bring healing, to administer his love to you, his grace to you. But at some point, now it's time to get back out there and love people again. And to start pursuing people in invitation. But they might reject me. Some of them will. Let me give you a promise. Here's what I want to encourage you with, church. Especially for our, in our context this Christmas season. <sighs> Pursue people. Seek out people who will accept Jesus. This will actually bring healing to you as well. Because when you move in love, it starts healing your heart with the love of God. And here's the beautiful thing. Here's, Jesus said, those who give up fields, houses, mothers, brothers, families for me will not fail to receive a hundred times as much. And here's the amazing part of it, what he says. In this life and in the life to come. How do you gain? People have always rejected me. I've never had friends. How do you gain friends that won't reject you? You become a friend. You become a safe place. You pour out love. And not to get it, just to love. And if you do that long enough, you will find yourself surrounded by people who love you deeply and who won't reject you or betray you. So watch this. When you, if you've been rejected Christian and you're, you're like, I just want to go to church or maybe not go to church. I just want to worship the Lord and be in the secret place. Because I've been so rejected, my heart hurts. Listen, if you'll get out there and start seeking to pursue people, to love people, to bring them into relationship with Jesus, going out to the country lanes, the highways and byways, finding the people who will accept him. If they will accept him, here's the deal. If your life is all about him, they'll accept you because you're all about him. But what happens so often is we as Christians, if we really love Jesus, if our life is all about him, we eventually will get rejected by some of the people we love the most. Because the truth is it's not us, it's that their lives aren't all about him. So who is the community of who are my mother and brothers? It's the people who are fully on mission, who fully love Jesus when you're fully on mission and you fully love Jesus. And if you'll go out and find people who accept Christ, eventually some of those people will become your mother and brothers. They'll become this close-knit family. It's the family of God. And you'll find your heart is being healed as you're not thinking about. That's, that's the trick of the devil. Sit in isolation and, and protect yourself and ask the Lord to heal your heart. And, and he brings healing to a certain point. But to finish the healing, you have to be proactive in love. That's the finishing of the rehab from the Lord. And so we believe in spiritual warfare and, and deliverance and all that, right? So we pray prayers. We prayed a few today already. We might renounce certain spirits, renounce, and that's helpful when the devil is pressing an attack that it's like pushing him back, right? But there are some strongholds that can only be broken through obedience and action, acting in the truth. You might be able to get the devil off your back through prayer. 
But to live in the fullness of freedom, you've got to live the truth. And so the Lord is calling us as a church family to move in the opposite spirit, to be a place of invitation, and to think about people who need Jesus the most. And so that's why there's one of these on your seat. It's an invite card that we had printed up a few weeks ago. And I would just want to give you a short challenge as we prepare to close today. And I want you to get this card, if you would, and just take it in your hands. And I want you to pray about over the next few weeks, if you're part of our church family, I want you to pray about who you could give this card to, who you could invite to church or invite to our Christmas services in particular. On Christmas weekend, it's our normal time, Saturday at 6, Sunday at 10, kids ministry on Sunday. That's, Chris, that's the 23rd and Christmas Eve, the 24th. More people are willing to come to church at Christmas than any other time of the year. 80% of people who do not go to church say they would go to church if someone invited them. 87% of people who are a part of a church, this is across all denominations, say that the way they became a part of that church was not through an ad or a billboard or a, or a postcard they got in the mail. It was through a personal invitation from a friend or someone they knew. I believe that's been true since Pentecost. The Lord added to their number daily. Was, was Jesus supernaturally drawing people and they had no idea, where am I, where am I, oh, who are you? You know, is that, no. I think people were just genuinely talking about what God was doing with friends and family and people they worked with and, and people came to see and boom, they met Jesus, the living Christ, the spirit of God. They believed the gospel. Thousands and thousands being saved. The Lord adding to their number daily. And so I want you to pray about who you could invite to church. <laughs> especially over Christmas. Christmas weekend is going to be a beautiful time in God's presence. I believe it's going to be like that Mount of Transfiguration. And, uh, but man, I tell you, the gospel will be explicitly preached. An invitation will be given for people to accept Christ. And there's something special that happens when people gather. You know, when you share your faith out in the world, you never know how receptive someone's going to be. And I've thought about this a lot. Why is church so powerful? Why do we see so many people come to faith like in church, in church services? Someone has made an intentional decision to come to church, to sit. Phones are silenced. Kids are not present. Most of the, you know, they're over there. Distractions are minimized. And what they have said by that choice to come and sit is, I will listen to what you have to say. They're open. They're receptive. They're seeking. And so it's powerful. It's powerful. And where two or three are gathered, he reveals himself in a special way. He's with all of us at all times, but when two or three are gathered, we notice God's presence in a greater way. And so pray about this. And here's how I feel led to encourage you to pray about this. Don't think about inviting your friends or family that are already Christians that go to other churches, but we have a Saturday service, so you could come Saturday night with me. That's, that's not what this is for. This is for the country lanes. This is for those who are the farthest that you know. This is for the person at your workplace that is the furthest from God, that you know desperately needs God, whether they know it or not. 
This is like the guy that brags about a sinful lifestyle. And you're always kind of like, oh, yeah, but I, oh, I just kind of repels me. Yeah, he needs Jesus. These are for the brokenhearted people, you know, who are grieving. These are the people in addiction. These are the people in depression, anxiety, the furthest, the people that need help the most. These are the people, the outcasts that you know, who've been rejected by everyone and everything. Because we have a God who will accept them. We have a God who loves everybody. You know that part that says compel them to come in? One definition can mean force. And I do want to clarify, I do not want you to kidnap people (laughs) and bring them to church on Christmas. Bible commentator David Guzik says it this way. Why compel? Because those wanderers and outcasts needed to be convinced they were welcome. When you go after people who've been rejected their whole lives, who live under a spirit of rejection, who think they're unworthy, and you offer them an invitation to your church, you will be amazed at the types of things you will hear. And as our church has done outreaches over the last 10 years with people around this area, you, I, I'm amazed at some of the things I've heard. I've heard, I'd be like, hey, do you have a church home? You should come out. You should come to our church. And I've heard people say, oh, oh, um, these are the only clothes I have. And I, I'm literally like, that doesn't compute with me. I'm like, Okay. Well, wear them, (laughs) please, but come. (laughs) And usually what they mean is I don't have nice clothes. And I know churches sometimes reject people who didn't dress right. And I'll often be like, I dress like this. I'm 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 one of the pastors. And people are like, you are? (laughs) I get that a lot. I don't know why. You? (laughs) Yeah. I don't know what that means, but yeah, believe it or not, you should come. I've had people say to me, oh, they get on, you can see them. Oh, mm, mm, uh, I got tattoos. Cool. I like that one. You should come. Like, why is that relevant? And then I hear a story. Oh, I was asked to cover it up or leave at a church. We don't care. Like, just come. You wear, wear your tank top. I don't care. Like, just come. I've heard people say, oh, oh, I'm not, I'm really not living the best right now. <laughs> and you know what I think when I hear that? Your honesty is beautiful. I wish some of our church people could be that honest. You know what I'm saying? Wow. You should come. <laughs> That's who it's for. It's not the healthy who need a doctor. Jesus didn't come to save the righteous. All of us are not living as good as we could be. You can't live as good as you could be on your own. You need Jesus to live better. You should come. I've been amazed when you try to seek out people who've been rejected by others, by society. I have to compel them to assure them you're welcome. So if you're out there 
and you're talking and maybe you invite and you find someone that gets uncomfortable and starts to feel like, I'm not sure I would be welcome there, you can be sure you've just found someone that you need to compel to come to church on Christmas weekend. So let's pray into that. And if you want to participate, just grab that in your hand. Hold it in your hand. If you're not sure yet, you can take this with you and pray about it later on your own. But I just want to end in prayer and ask the Lord to show us who we can invite for each one of us as individuals. Because the Lord says in his word, I want my house to be full. The Lord grieves over empty seats in churches. He wants his house to be full. And the harvest is ripe right now. You know, if you were constantly planting seeds at any given month or week, there would be some generation of seed you've sown that's ripe. So at any given time, there are ripe people in this culture who are ready to receive Christ as Lord. So Lord, right now in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would reveal to us who these people are that are ready, who are ready to receive you, and who desperately need you, who need help who need you, who need spiritually what you offer them, forgiveness of sin, the hope of heaven, peace of mind, healing of their heart. God, would you show each one here who these people are? Would you lay names and faces on their hearts? And Lord, as we go about our week this week, even as we interact with people, maybe it's someone we haven't even met yet, someone we come across and we go, oh, Holy Spirit, would you just orchestrate moments, divine appointments where it's like, oh, this is it. This is the person. Invite him. Invite him. Invite him. And Lord, I pray your house will be full this Christmas all across this region in other churches as well. I just ask, Lord, right now that you would stir up your people to offer people something so much greater than a, a Christmas gift or a present but to offer them eternal life, to offer them an invitation to come to know Christ. That we could be like Andrews. You know, we read about Peter a lot. We look up to Peter. But the way he came to know Christ was his brother said, you got to come and see. We found him. So give us the heart of Andrew, God. We praise Billy Graham a lot. We are, thank God for Billy Graham and all he's done. But man, what about the parents of Billy Graham? What about the pastor who preached and saw Billy Graham come to faith? What about the friend who invited Billy Graham to the service that night? God, give us the heart of Andrew to invite people and to preach the gospel. You are not rejected. You are invited. And I know people have rejected you, but the Lord is inviting you. It doesn't matter what people think about you when you know the king of kings loves you. So give us that heart. Give us that passion, Jesus. I pray we would burn with passion, not only to worship you, but to see other people worship you. To love what we love, which is you. So much more than any hobby or any food or any thing of this world that we could be passionate about, that we are excited to share with people about. All oh, this will help your life. Let me tell you about this. What about Jesus? Oh, Lord, give us this passion to seek and to save the lost. That's why you came. 
So God, fill our hearts with your love for the least of these and for people who need you, for the spiritually poor, the spiritually blind. Open up doors, God. Open up hearts. Remove veils off this region, off of people's hearts and minds, veils of deception, veils of unbelief to prepare people to receive you, God. And we thank you for that in Jesus' mighty name. And I just want to close today with this. If you are here today and you've never received Christ as Lord, I want to give you that opportunity. And scripture says, if you believe in your heart, Jesus rose from the dead. So he died on the cross for you. If you believe the scriptures and you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. He's my Lord. I'm making this decision. I want him to be my Lord and Savior. You will be saved. For it's with your heart you believe in. It's with your mouth you confess and you're saved. God's just waiting on your, your permission. He's a sovereign God, but he gives you free will. Salvation's a free gift, but you got to receive it. And you got to open it. And the way you open it and receive it and take it and have his blood applied to your life is by confessing with your mouth, I want this, Jesus. I want you to be Lord. And you're turning from your sins. I'm going to come under the lordship of Christ. I'm not going to live the way I want to live anymore. I'm going to live to the best of my ability, the best I know how, how God wants me to live. And that's all that it is. But if you are sincere in that today, Jesus will save you. The Holy Spirit will come into your life. Your sins will be forgiven in this moment. You'll be guaranteed heaven in this moment. The Holy Spirit will come inside of you to dwell in this moment. The moment you believed, Ephesians says. You were given a deposit, a seal guaranteeing what is to come. You don't need to wait to clean up your life first. You can't clean up your life good enough for God to accept you. Jesus saves you. He comes in. Then he helps you clean up your life. It's his, it's his grace. So if that's you here today and you want to receive him today, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand here in a second. And if you raise your hand, I'll have you say this short, simple prayer with us. And I'll have every other believer in this room say it out loud with us so that you're not alone. And so if that's you, just lift up your hand right now. And I want to lead you in prayer to receive Christ. Is there anybody here right now who wants to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior today? I see a little hand over here. Anybody else? So every believer in this room, let's pray out loud with this person that's raised their hand. And just repeat after me. Say, Jesus, forgive me my sin. Come into my life. Make me brand new. Give me the gift of your Holy Spirit. I want you to be my Lord. I turn from my sins. Help me live for you every day of my life. Thank you for saving me. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.